0: Amen. morning, church. Kids, you can be dismissed to the Transformation Station. My name is Kevin Sanders. I am a, the church planning apprentice here at Redemption Hill. Um, we just began this past week our first community group in our house in Arlington, and so uh, early stages there. So I know many of you have been praying for us. Can, continue to pray, and we're looking forward to seeing what God is going to do If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 6 this morning, starting a new chapter as we walk through the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible that's provided for you, it's page 891, and we'll begin reading in verse 1 of John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not buy enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is coming into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, the disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the Sea of Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that we can gather freely And hear what you have to speak to us through John chapter 6. And God, we ask that as we look at our Savior this morning, who is compassionate, powerful in our provision, that you would stir our hearts to know you, to love you, to worship you, and to take this good news with us into our lives as we leave today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're we're all looking for provision. We we work for provision, right? We have jobs that earn money so we can buy food, provide for our family, provide clothing, uh, provide shelter. Um, don't don't raise your hand. But many people bought uh, uh, Powerball tickets, right? They put their hand in to try and get a little a little chunk of the one point six billion dollar jackpot. That's another sermon, if that's you. But uh, this week, why? Because when we think of provision. The main thing that comes to our mind is temporal things, right? To be provided for means to have money, and it means to have things. But what we see in this text and what we know as Christians is that there is a deeper and greater provision that that all of us need, an eternal provision. And so the main point of what we just read is simply this, that Jesus is our compassionate and powerful provision. So three things there. Jesus is compassionate, he is powerful, and he is our provision. Before we kind of dig into that, though, just a little bit of background that I think will be helpful on John chapter 6. John 6 is the longest chapter in the New Testament. And what it does is it follows kind of John's model of providing a sign and then Jesus giving a discourse that helps clarify what that sign or what that miracle was. Well, today we're seeing the sign or the signs, two miracles, and next week we'll see more of Jesus' discourse explaining what it, what it is. And the two signs, we just read them there. One is the miraculous multiplication of this little boy's lunch to feed 5,000 men, really probably fifteen to 20,000 people, and then this this story that seems out of place, but we'll see it's not. The, these few verses that tell of Jesus walking on water to uh, calm his fearful disciples when they're in the midst of a storm on the sea, and as as we'll see that there there is rich Old Testament imagery here that points to, just as we've already seen in the Gospel of John, points to Jesus as the Messiah, the promised Savior that we read about in the Old Testament. And really we see that Jesus actually is, once again, through these signs, who he says he is. And so let's walk through these three things. The compassion of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the provision of Jesus. First thing I want you to see, the compassion of Jesus we we immediately see that Jesus has compassion for those in need. Uh, There's this large crowd that's following Jesus because, John tells us, they witnessed the signs that he was doing. Now, we don't know if that's like a a negative intention. Like they're they're following him not because they care who he actually is or or if they're following him just because they want stuff. We don't know. We, We can only assume there. But we know that's the reason they're following him. And the, the idea is that Jesus is actually trying to get away. He's going to be by himself with his disciples, but they're, they're chasing him. Large crowds, 5,000 men. And while John doesn't explicitly say this, Mark tells us that Jesus sees the crowd, Mark chapter 6, and he has compassion on them. He says that they're, they're as sheep without a shepherd, Mark six thirty four. John tells us, John loves seeing language, that Jesus sees the crowd. Now, just, just think about this for a second. If that were any one of us, I'll just be honest, if that were me, my tendency would be, seriously? After all I've done, haven't I done enough signs and wonders? Like, a man needs his rest. Can you guys just go home and maybe we can pick, pick this up next week? Right, but that's not Jesus' response. Jesus has moved with compassion. And the word that Mark uses in Mark chapter 6 gives this idea of being moved deep, deeply and inwardly to action. In the first words we read of Jesus in John chapter 6, is Jesus wondering, How are we going to feed these people? Jesus doesn't actually wonder that. He says that because he wants to teach Philip a lesson, but his first response is that these people may eat. That's his concern. We see the compassion of Jesus for these people in need. We know that th- these people were likely poor. H- how do we know that? Well, none of, none of them had food with them. Maybe it was because they were traveling, but it's, it's probably because they when they're on journeys, they weren't bringing food because they were poor. But we really know this because this one boy who had lunch had loaves made of barley, and barley was not food for middle-class or upper-class people. They ate wheat bread. Barley was for the poor. And so we have this image of a crowd that's following Jesus. He's probably tired. We know he's done a a ton of things for them already. They're poor, but Jesus, instead of pushing them off, says, how are we going to feed these people? He immediately shows compassion for them. And we as Christians, we should have similar eyes like Christ does, even when it's inconvenient, right? Today we just heard about, just heard Sarah share, is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday? Where does that come from as a Christian, the the desire, the value of life? It comes from our King Jesus, who had a, a supreme concern for those who were in need. We see it not just here. We see it all over the New Testament, all over the the pages of Scripture, and and we as Christians should value life, human life made in the image of God because we are like Christ. We're moved with compassion for those in need. Tomorrow's Martin Luther King Day. We remember a man who was moved. If, If you were to ask him if he were here today, he would say moved by God, the will of God, the compassion of Jesus to see people made in the image of God as equal as God intended, and to stand up for them. He's moved by compassion, and we should follow suit. But there's another encouragement for here as as well. Because Mark emphasizes those who are in spiritual need. He says they're like sheep without a shepherd, and John emphasizes those who who have physical need, those who, who need to eat. And so we can ask ourselves, who's in need here? All of us, right? If you're in physical need, know this. You have a a Savior who cares about that need. And as we'll see in a moment, He is powerful and able to meet those needs. But every single one of us, we're in the spiritual need. And Jesus doesn't look at us and shake His head and say, Man, seriously, Kevin, not again. No. He is moved inwardly, deeply to action with Compassion. So Jesus has compassion for those in need. He also has compassion for the doubters. So the scenario is these uh, fifteen to 20,000 people, 5,000 men, fifteen to 20,000 people are hungry. How are we going to feed them? In verse 5, Jesus says to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? In, in John, verse 6, he clarifies for us, John tells us that Jesus said this not because he was actually wondering, right? He said this to test Philip because he knew what he would do. Jesus already knew what was going to happen. And so already that's a compassionate action, right? You have a man, Jesus, who has these followers around him. And he brings these followers, these disciples in and says, listen, I could just do this thing without you guys, but I care about you. I care about your sanctification. That means growing in holiness I care that you grow into Christ-likeness like me, so I'm going I'm to give you this test. Hey, Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? All right. And Philip, verse 7, shows his lack of faith. He, he looks at the money bag. He says, 200 denarii. That's about eight months of salary. Wouldn't be enough for each of them to get a little. And here's what D.A. Carson, a commentator, says about Philip. He says, Philip's response betrays the fact that he can think only at the level of the marketplace, the natural world. Philip, who has, by the way, witnessed Jesus perform many miracles already, says, listen, I don't know how we're going to have the money to make this happen. Yes, we we do have the king of the universe, but we only have 200 denarii. Shows his lack of faith. And then Andrew comes along, verses 8 and 9, and he finds this boy with five loaves and two fish. Now, we think loaves, we think like a loaf of bread. This is really this, this boy's lunch. These are, think, little uh, cakes of bread and maybe two anchovies, right? So he finds a little boy with, with his lunch. And at first it looks like, okay, Andrew might come with kind of, you know, a big step of faith. Jesus, here's this guy. Do your thing. Just zap it. And we can feed all these people. But the end of verse 9 tells us, here's Andrew's response. But what are they for so many? I don't see how this is going to happen. Both of these men have witnessed the miraculous knowledge of Jesus, the miraculous power of Jesus. They've heard him teach about who he is. They've seen him turn water into wine, raise the sick. Yet they're they're still lacking faith. I don't don't know how this is going to happen. Yet Jesus doesn't shake his head. He doesn't say, seriously, guys. Pay attention. He doesn't show any sort of impatience. No, he shows compassion. He brings them along. And this should be an encouragement to the skeptic. Now, if if you're in here and you're, you're skeptical about Jesus, know that you're not alone. And I don't just mean that you're not alone with other people who may be opposed to to organized religion or Christianity. I mean, you're not alone because there are people in the Bible who walked with Jesus who are just as skeptical as you are. And if you're you're here as a Christian, let's let's be honest. All of us have these moments where we have seen God work, but we suffer from this uh, Jesus amnesia. We've, we've forgotten what he's revealed to us. We've forgotten how he's worked in our lives. And we're, we're looking at situations and we're saying, I don't know how, how God's going to work in this. Well, know this. You're not alone. And Christ has compassion for you, the doubter. We'll come back to the doubters. But, but see this also. Christ also has compassion for the fearful. We're going to come back to the, the miracle of multiplying the bread and the fish, but look at verses uh, 16 through 21. This is the story of Jesus walking on the water, and, and John gives us this account. Um, they're, they're caught in a storm. It's nighttime, and verse 19 says, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened, now, Matthew and Mark tell us why they were frightened. They, they thought they saw a ghost. I mean, can you imagine? You're already scared, by the way. You're, they're fearful because of the storm, likely. And then there is a creature, who knows what it is. It's raining. You can't see walking towards you. And you're thinking, oh, this is it. We're dead, right? The storm doesn't take us. The sea monster will. So they're frightened. But, but notice this. Here's what John doesn't say. John does not say anything about Jesus calming the storm. Now, we know from the other accounts, from the other Gospels, that Jesus did calm the storm, but John doesn't mention a thing about that. What, what does John emphasize? His focus isn't on what Jesus does to calm their fears, but who Jesus is to calm their fears. That's John's focus. He calms his fearful disciples by assuring them of his presence. Verse 20. It is I. Do not be afraid. Parents, you know what it's like when your child wakes up in the middle of the night, maybe has a scary dream, comes into your your room, and what they don't want is a full explanation for the monster that may or may not be in the closet or or the dream that they had. What do they want? They want the presence, the calming presence of their mom or their dad, right? Right? John is emphasizing here that the presence of Jesus is compassion for the fearful. Here's what R.C. Sproul says about this. He says, it certainly illustrates what happens when Jesus comes into our lives. Life is a time of pulling against the oars, against resistance, trying to get somewhere. However, we're not getting anywhere and we're about to be engulfed. But as soon as Jesus gets in the boat, we're home free. That's what happens when Christ comes into the lives of his people. He doesn't take away all the difficulties and make our lives beds of ease, but he gets us through the darkness. He gets us through the violence. He carries us through the storm. Jesus shows compassion on his fearful disciples by just being there for them, by being the presence of God for them. Now, now, what about you? What about your fears? Maybe, maybe you're in a storm of life, right? a trial. Maybe you're anxious about the future, about what tomorrow will bring, about your career, about rejection. Maybe you're fearful of rejection from God or from others. Well, when we come to Jesus, we have a compassionate Savior who calms our fears With his presence. It is I, do not fear. Now, back to the multitude. We also see this is number two. In addition to the compassion of Jesus, we see the power of Jesus. Jesus shows that he has total sovereign power over creation by performing these two miracles. He takes the bread and the fish, he multiplies it, he walks on water. Right? The text again tells us 15,000 men were present, so that means about probably about 15 to 20,000 people. Now at this point, this is one of those stories where someone may say, "Now listen, you don't actually like believe this stuff, do you?" Right? You, you guys don't actually believe these, these miracles happen. One, one commentator who does not believe that they happen, tries to explain away the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 by saying it's an ethical miracle. Still don't know what that is, but what he says happened was really there were people there who had lunch, um, but they weren't willing to share it. They, weren't, they didn't want to share it with the poor. And so what Jesus did was he taught, and um, he, as he taught, he encouraged them to share their lunch. That's a great story that I think my son heard in first grade last week. Um, but that's not what we read in the text, is it? That's nowhere in the text. He goes on to say that, well, Jesus didn't actually walk on, on water. They, they really just saw Jesus on the shore and he was speaking to them. Now, they're three miles on the sea and it's raining and it's nighttime. And they, So you, how can you see three miles in the dark in the middle of the storm? But but there's more. We We have to remember that this isn't just one man's account of this. Matthew also wrote about this, an eyewitness. Mark, in his gospel, likely got his source from Peter, an eyewitness and close personal companion of Jesus. Luke, he wrote his gospel as an investigative research journalist, and he spoke to eyewitnesses. So we have many people giving accounts of these miracles. In addition to that, one question I've always had is why, if these miracles are not true, then why don't the enemies of Jesus just point this out? But we see in the Gospels that Jesus' enemies affirm the signs and wonders that He did. John chapter 11, verse 47-48, the Pharisees and chief priests say, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. Truth is, this is is a true account. This is the Word of God of the power of our King Jesus. The question for us is do we believe in the power of Jesus? Now, just a disclaimer here. We're not talking about the power of Jesus is not like the force, okay? Right? And I'm not going to tell you how many times I've seen the new Star Wars movie because you'll make fun of me. Um, um, but my son saw it for the first time on Friday. He got some Star Wars gifts from his grandmother over Christmas, and so it's like Star Wars fever in our house right now. It kind of always is, but the level's been taken up a little bit with the new movie. And so he's, he's going around, and he's actually um, explained the force to his sisters. So the other day, I'm sitting at the breakfast table, and Riley, she's never seen Star Wars, um, she's going like this to me. She's got her hand out like this. Yeah, you Star Wars fans know, you already know, I just do this, and you're like, yeah, she's trying to force choke you. And I, I knew what she was doing, and i say, Riley, what are you doing? She goes, I'm trying to use the force. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about the power of Jesus. It's not this magical power that can be manipulated by us for our own benefit. we got to be careful here when we say, do do you believe in the power of Jesus in in your life? What we're really asking is is that question of, of Philip. Are we like Philip? That Carson comment, that quote on Philip again says, his response betrays the fact that he can only think of the natural world. Is that us? Can we only think of what can happen here and within our understanding? Or do we believe in King Jesus who rules the universe, who can heal people, who can multiply bread, who can walk on water? What does that look like in our life? I'll just give you a real practical example for me. As I was convicted this week, as I was studying this, I was thinking about what we're praying and asking and aiming for in Arlington with Redeeming Grace Church. We just started our first community group, had a prayer night two weeks ago. A first group this last Wednesday night in our home, started walking through the book of Acts, praying together. And God's, God's doing some great things. But I just realized as I'm studying this, that when I think about what God can do, that I'm more like Philip. That, that, I'm, that I have weak faith. That I often find myself thinking, I'm, I'm going to fail at this. This, this is going to bomb. I don't see how this is, is going to happen. Now listen, I don't have a promise for myself that there's going to be a successful church that I pastor in Arlington. That's not a biblical promise. I don't know. But I do have a promise from Scripture that says, Christ will build his church. And that's a promise that I can cling to. And I I do see in Scripture, Acts 18, where Jesus speaks to Paul and says, I have many people in this city. That's why you're here. Do I believe in the power of Jesus to build his church in Arlington? That's just me putting my cards on the table. That's, That's what the application is for me. For you, it may be that person you want to see come to faith. But you're thinking, I don't know how this person would ever step foot in a church. I don't know how they would ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. You really don't? Because Romans 1:16 says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation." You do know how that person could come to faith in Jesus. The power of the gospel you may be here, and you may be an unbeliever, and you may say, you know what? I don't know how Jesus can accept me. I see the rest of you guys, yeah, but you don't know the, the baggage I have. You don't know the sins that I have. Listen, don't sell Jesus short on the power he has to work in your life. It's perfectly on display here. Remember, this is John's purpose with this book. That's why he's written. He's written. John 20, 31, these things, the signs and wonders, the teachings of Jesus are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the power of God. A.W. Tozer says this, how completely satisfying it is to turn from our limitations to a God who has none. That's That's the lesson that Philip and Andrew are about to learn. Here's here's what I love about Jesus. Not only do you see the compassion of Jesus by itself or the power of Jesus by itself. In Jesus, you see both the perfect compassion coupled with perfect power. Do you see that? It's it's not as if this should encourage us because it's not as if Jesus is merely compassionate. He's moved, but he can't do anything. Or it's not as if he's merely powerful. He can perform miracles. He can do whatever he wants, but he doesn't care about you. He is both compassionate and powerful. Might and mercy coupled together in the person of Jesus Christ. What a Savior we have. This, this is what the gospel is. In Christ's compassion, he came from heaven, became one of us, fully God, fully man, lived a sinless life, died the death that you and I deserve because of our sins on the cross. All of that because he was moved with compassion for sinners like us. And then, didn't stop there, in his power, he conquered the the grave, was raised from death to life so that all who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Might and mercy, power and compassion in Jesus And then number three, we we see the provision of Jesus. So Jesus provides for the physical needs of these people. He performs this miracle. He gives thanks to God. Verse 11 tells us that these people were not just fed, but they were able to have as much as they wanted. They were fed to abundance. But the point of all of this is not the physical miracle that Jesus performs. That's, that's not the main point. And that's why we've got to I encourage you later to read the rest of John chapter 6. Helps clarify this. But there's a dangerous line of thinking we've got to be careful of that would take a passage like this and say, you can come to Jesus, and if you believe in him, he's going to give you whatever you want. Right? Here it is right here. Just have enough faith. He'll multiply. He'll give you food. He'll give you money. He'll give you health. He'll, he'll give you wealth. That's not the gospel. And we know that because Jesus himself had no place to rest his head. He was abandoned by his friends in his dying hours, and he was nailed to a cross. And his disciples, the fate was likewise. So so we know the promise here isn't just, listen, if you come to Jesus, you're going to have everything you want in this life. That's That's not the promise. So what is this pointing to? This pointing to the ultimate provision of spiritual need in Jesus Christ. That's what this miracle points to. This, this Jewish audience who witnessed this miracle, they knew their Old Testament very, very well. So John tells us in verse 4 that this happened at the time of, of Passover. It was a time when national pride was at its peak. Right? Think 4th of July, maybe times 50. Right? It was Passover for the Jews. And when they saw this miracle, they would have recollected Exodus chapter 16 where God provided manna, which means, what is it? Bread falling from heaven through Moses to his people in the wilderness. And so these people are remembering their Bibles. They they know it well. They're seeing Jesus perform this miracle. And then they're thinking about Deuteronomy 18, probably, which says there's a prophet who's going to come who's greater than Moses. And they're thinking, this guy is it. So what do they do in verse 15? They go and they say, we need to make him king they were half right. This this was the prophet, but, but they were wrong in thinking that his kingdom was of this, this world. They misunderstood that part. They misunderstood the purpose of the miracle. See, the, the big miracle is not that you can come to Jesus and get earthly things, but that you and I, as earthly, broken, dead beings, can come to Jesus and get life. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us here. The point is not, listen, I will Just be your provider. The point is, I am your provision. There's a difference there. That's why I believe John put this story of of Jesus walking on the water right after this. Because if you read it straight through, you think, maybe that that doesn't make sense. He feeds the 5,000, he walks on water, and then he goes back to talking about the feeding of the 5,000. Why is that? John is trying to show us that the real bread of life is Jesus himself. That what the disciples need most is not those 12 baskets of bread that are left over, but they need the bread of life, Jesus. That's what he's emphasizing here. So I'd ask you this, is Jesus your provision? Is he the bread of life to you or are you looking to to other things to, to satisfy It's a practical way to help you answer that question. Take some time this week, each day, at the end of each day, spend some time, open the Word, read this again, take pen and paper, and and say, God, help me see what did I spend most of my time thinking about today? Because whatever consumes your thoughts, the chances are that's what you're looking to for satisfaction. That's what you're feasting on. Is Jesus your provision? Listen. The amount of money you make, the relationships you have, your career, those are all good things to be enjoyed rightly. But as bread, it's stale. It will never satisfy, and it will go in the ground when you and I do. Jesus is our provision. Are you you feasting on him? And then just just turn that around and, and ask yourself this question. Who do I need to know? Or who do I know that needs to hear about the bread? Right? Who, who is it in your life? There, there may be like someone in the crowd. Yeah, I, I love Jesus. I, I can come to him and get what I want. They have a misunderstanding about who Christ is. Or who do you know that is looking to the things of this world to satisfy them? And they need to hear about the bread of life. They need to hear about the gospel. Just to encourage you, this morning, Pastor John Chastain started a start group. That's a great way for people New believers exploring the truth about Christianity. You can jump in there. It's a practical way to do that. There's resources on the back table that help you. Tracks, booklets that help you explain the bread of life better to the loved ones around you. But if you've tasted and seen who Jesus is and share it with others. It's another practical takeaway. Are you feasting on Jesus daily? In the word and prayer. When we think about the word in prayer, what it means to feast on Jesus, those are the practical ways that God gives us, very simple ways. But, but, but a lot of us, the problem is a lot of us, we think, you know, I get some good, good stuff on Sunday morning, maybe pop in my Bible a few times during the week. But remember the imagery that Jesus has used in the Gospel of John, living water, bread of life. And let me ask you this, how many of you just drink water once a month? How many of you say, you know what, I'm, going to take a, I'm just going to chug a gallon on Sunday morning and that'll get me through for the week, right? Or, you know, I, I, I'm going to eat my meal on Monday morning, then I'm good till next Monday morning. No, how often do you need food? How often do you need water? You need it daily to survive, and the same is true with the bread of life. You need Christ daily for your spiritual life. So feast on him in the word in prayer. And as, as we close, let's together, together see Jesus as our compassionate, powerful provision. And just leave you with this quote from John Piper. He says, it's not mainly that Jesus gives bread to satisfy our stomachs, but that he is bread to satisfy our souls. Let's pray together. Father God, we, we come before you and acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge that we, oftentimes, are hungry, and we don't even know it. We're looking to other things in this world to satisfy us. We struggle with believing who you are for us daily. So God, I pray that you would encourage us that you are a compassionate God. You've given us a compassionate Savior. In Jesus. And Father I I pray. That you would show us. That we need your power daily in our lives. That what you've called us to do. We cannot do apart from you. And Father I pray if there's anybody in this room. Who has not yet tasted. The bread of life. They've never trusted. In your son Jesus. Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and new life, I pray that your spirit would open their hearts now and they would trust in you. And God, would you impress it upon our hearts to take the bread of life that you have given so freely to undeserved sinners like us. May we take that bread from this place and share it with those in need this week. God, if it's just one person you impress upon our hearts that needs to hear the gospel May we be faithful to it. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we give you and you alone all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.